and welcome to episode five of the School of High Tide podcast, supported by Nick Hearn Books. My name is Naomi Shonea Thomas, and I'm an emerging writer, producer, and host of this podcast, alongside Shuba Daz, the artistic director of High Tide, and Chris Sonix, the associate artist at High Tide, and also curator of this program. Our guest for today's episode is Juliet Jilts Romero, an award-winning playwright whose work includes The Whip at the RSE, Uppercut at the Southwark Playhouse, and Gates of Gaza at the Birmingham Rep. Juliet started her career as a successful journalist before she began playwriting, and finds inspiration from historical and political events that have often been forgotten but need to be told. So if you're an emerging writer and you want to shine a light on an issue, but you're not really sure how to do it without turning it into some kind of political essay, or maybe you have this fire in your belly and you found a story that you are desperate to tell, but feel that maybe you've left it too late to start writing and that ship has sailed. I hope this episode will help you to realise that no matter who you are, how old you are, whatever your background is, you have every right to create theatre that has the power to shift people's views and to challenge the world that we are living in right now. I'm, I'm Juliet, Juliet Jolts Romero. Um, my background is journalism. I have a passion for news and current affairs and history. And given the events, particularly of the past year, I am very much left wondering whether democracy, or rather, whether history can strengthen democracy. And um, when I think about the subjects that I'm drawn to in general, they often look at the handprint of history on our present. And it's not that I don't write contemporary pieces, but I'm very interested in how we are informed by our past and how our failure to look back at times weakens our present. Mm, It's really interesting. So say um, you were to find a historical event or topic and you think, oh, that could make an interesting play. Um, Do you have a particular way of adapting it and to bring in those stories to life? Because I sometimes feel that um, when I find either maybe it's a statistic or a news story or something from current affairs, um, one of the challenges is how to make that into an engaging story that people really want to watch rather than um, and what differentiates it from a news story, for example. Yes, or or a history lesson, yeah, which would be most boring. Yeah, um, I I think that was my journey as a writer. Mm. Um, one of the first plays I wrote um, was a play called At the Gates of Gaza. I spent a lot of time in the Imperial War Museum, reading the diaries of men who had fallen. This is during the First World War, um, and it was about the British West Indies Regiment which fought in what was Palestine. And I obsessed with the research and the history and felt very overwhelmed um, by a responsibility to get it right. And, of course, my first draft read like a panorama documentary, mm. which is not dramatic. And um, my my journey actually was to trust that I understood the research and to throw it all over my shoulder mm. because the most important function of storytelling is character. And I learned that 
the characters' journeys are absolutely everything. And not to feel too beholden um, or by the history itself. Um, when I started writing that particular play, I, I, I at first, I, I, you know, I didn't want to write anything that threatened the kind of integrity and 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 the historical contribution of these, the, the these men who risked and lost their lives in the trenches of um, the Middle East. But you know, at the end of the day. Um, your your characters it's it's about behavior um and and how people respond to events so you know you you have to write um from a, a point of view which can be disrespectful is the wrong word it has to be challenging so your characters have to be complex they have to show complex behavior in order for us to take that journey with them and the stakes must be high. So the the research was 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 great, but I had to leave it behind and really sit in a trench with with these these five men who were getting on each other's nerves and who were trying to survive um, and understand why they were there and why they chose to to, to fight in this, this this conflict, where you know ultimately. Um, they were forgotten mm. and, and not respected. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the story this week um, about lock of, uh, about a lot of the um, black and Asian soldiers who fought in was it World War Two and hadn't had a, a marked grave, whereas everyone else got an individual tombstone. That's right. It was for both wars, and um, the particularly during the First World War. Um, the authorities felt that um, gravestones were wasted on semi-savages. This was the language being used and that, you know, um, it it wasn't worth remembering them because they wouldn't be able to appreciate um, being memorialised, which is one of the reasons why I wrote this particular play Mm. quite a while ago. But it's, it's, it's disgusting, you know. It makes me very angry um, and I did write the play from from a, a point of, of view of of rage. And it's interesting as well because it's a topic that, um, as you said, it, it, it ignited some sort of rage um, within you. And it's something um, that I'm sure you must have felt at the time that more people need to know about this. Um, and sometimes I have ideas like that as well, where it, it will come from um, me finding something that feels like it's an injustice. And it's an issue that I want more people to know about. Um, but at the same time, there's lots of debates at the moment about whether we see too much black trauma depicted on stage slash screen. And that I'm sort of wrestling with how to balance this and how to make work that is politically engaged and that does raise awareness and that does allow people to have a conversation and allow people to feel seen, um, but also not traumatise an audience and not traumatise myself. So how do you how do you balance that? It's a, that's a it's a fantastic question, um, and my approach is as a three hundred and sixty degree angle. So I write if I'm writing about history, I'm writing about British history, and you know I have I like to show how um, events intersect with um, you know the white community and the black community. 
I am not a big fan of, you know, black trauma plays where, because people, you know, a lot of plays were commissioned um, about, as, as an easy example, knife crime, mm-hmm. um, you know, where we're just looking at one section of British society um, where, you know, all of the characters are victims of said crime. Mm. I'm currently writing a piece about Black Lives Matter and criminal justice. And I insisted that because I interviewed um, a lot of um, young black people who've been caught at the sharp end of sentencing, um, who get um, who are sentenced um, first time, whereas white counterparts um, might be, you know, given a suspended sentence by magistrates. You know, young black kids are finding themselves um, behind bars for you know, minor crimes. And, you know, to approach this subject, I insisted that I talk to um, prison officers, white prison officers, white and black police officers. I interviewed um, Leroy Logan to get his perspective of having been a policeman and how how he felt that intersected with, um, you know, the white community that he was policing. Um, and what we discussed was the fact that, you know, um, the, the pushback is the idea that black people can police white people. So if you're going to do a subject like that, you have to do it from both angles. So my, my, my plays are multicultural plays. So, mm. for example, with the, with the Whip, a lot of people thought that was a play that was just about the slave trade. And it was dismissed as a play as just about the slave trade. And you know, I thought, okay, I'll just wait to, for opening night for people to come along and to actually learn that this is about British history. You know, you, you say that you, you, you find these stories, you know, and, and you're not interested in, in just looking at them as black trauma. Turn them on their heads. Look at it from every perspective. I write all kinds of characters black and white characters. And I'm very proud of my ability to do that. So the whip was seen from a very parliamentary point of view. And I was writing the kinds of of histories and debate that are normally the preserve of white playwrights. Mm. And people have a, a, you know, I think people sometimes feel challenged by that. You know, I think we need to challenge ourselves as black writers and therefore challenge an audience when we're writing. I see um, a play like The Whip as as being an antidote to the revisionist history that, that we learn at school and in this country. I just wanted to ask, um, before I do hand over to Shuba, just if you have uh, just more about your, your career as a writer, um, and particularly because you, you started uh, your career as a journalist first. Mm. And um, I, I see lots of opportunities out there for new and emerging writers, but they're often capped at the age of 26 or the age of 30, um, so it's quite hard. I would say it's harder to come into writing after having perhaps done a different career or maybe had children at a young age or anything it is that made you not have the opportunity to write when you were mm. 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, so I just wondered if you have any advice, if there are any emerging playwrights out there who who want to get into it but might be above the age of, say, 30. Again, I think that's a... A really good question because I started late and um, I, I think I 
experienced pushback. I, you know, I wasn't um, molded within um, a, a theatre community or, or a particular theatre building. You know, I, 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 I came as a fully fledged professional um, foreign affairs reporter and a black one. Mm. So, you know, and that's unusual for people. So um, I had to, I kind of had to fight my way, stick to my guns about what I wanted to write about. I think, you know, you have to go where the love is. You have to find people who are not afraid of the rubble of your imagination. Because even though I had a, a previous career, and journalism, I think, is, is <laughs> again, runs parallel to theatre in terms of it, it, the power of its storytelling. So I, I understood story and, and structure in people's voices, but I had to learn as well. What I discovered was that as a emerging black writer who was coming to the industry later, um, I wasn't always afforded the space to learn, to fail, to to make mistakes. Um, you know, you 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 write a, a a play that's not well received as an emerging writer, and you know people will let you know about it, and you don't always get that second opportunity. And I think that you just have to be resilient. I, you know, my, my message, particularly to people coming out of this, you know, the, 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 the pandemic and, and lockdown, it, it's all about resilience and finding that community of creatives who are prepared to be open towards you and also not try to, to force you into um, a particular box as to the kind of black writer that they expect you to be. Um, and that was my other um, battle, if, if, if you will. And um, I, I am unashamed in, you know, being determined to be Juliet, um, who I am, and to not be compared to other black writers. You know, we all come with enormous experience of all kinds of different angles. And it's just a matter of finding those people who are not afraid of of your creative expression. Wow, that's really great advice. Thank you. Um, and now I'd like to um, bring Shuba in to talk more about your career as a writer. Hello there. Hey, Shuba. And first and foremost, um, it's so wonderful to have you with us uh, for this series, Juliet. Um, Juliet was, in fact, the first playwright I met as artistic director at High Tide, um, which was glorious, I think, because of your relationship also with East of England, where we produce our annual festival of work and what had sort of um, passed us by as a company previously was that we had this extraordinary black British writer but who is Suffolk born and bred. Um, I must, I... I what bred? Yeah, right. I wasn't born in Suffolk. We moved to Suffolk. Um, I was born in East, East London, Walthamstow and we moved to Suffolk when I was 10 years old. We settled in a village. My mother was a teacher. She was the first black teacher in Suffolk County Council um, Education Authority. And um, it was quite a transition. Mm. Um, 
I think for my brother and I, it was um, an interesting one. And we, we, we managed it because our parents really instilled in us such a sense of identity and love of our own cultural identity that it was unassailable mm. <laughs> because when we arrived in Suffolk, you know, we, we, we were the only black family where we, we, we lived. Yeah, no, it, it's, it was an interesting um, transition and, um, but I've, I've grown a lot from it and I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm very close to and appreciate both East London and, and Suffolk. Just what captures me immediately there is, is something that you've mentioned um, about this idea of lost history, because actually it is surprising to us to imagine that non-white people just right now are growing up in rural communities, in non-urban contexts. That was my own journey. I grew up in a small village in the northeast. And the representation we see of, of um, cultural diversity sort of in mainstream media or what have you is um is that there isn't that tradition i i completely agree with that and and that's why i i want to tell stories and i want to use the stage as as as, as a crucible for that kind of debate because my experience and what i know to be true is not reflected in the kinds of stories that we see commissioned particularly in, in, in TV drama, um, you know, and the idea that um, particularly black communities were only prevalent in this country from the arrival of Windrush in, in the, the ship in 1948 is an absolute nonsense. I just wondered, it's also reminded me of um, Ishii Din's work with this World War One play that I worked on, Wipers, um, which is... He knew the context and he knew he wanted to tell the story of the first Indian soldier that, that won a Victoria Cross. But what he chose to do was, so this, this chap was out there manning his machine gun post and he instead told a story about four entirely invented characters who were stuck in a barn waiting for him to come back mm -hmm. because that gave him safety. It gave him uh, liberation, I think, from some of the responsibilities of thinking about what well, these are real people and and how do I you know if there is such potentially limited information how do I make them three-dimensional without sort of imposing and I wondered if that experience reflects anything that you've looked at in any of your work um I guess so one of my favorite quotes is you know when journalism is silence literature must speak and it is this idea about finding those truthful moments um, where you, your, your characters can be themselves mm. and without that fear of having to ennoble them um, in a way that is emotionally untruthful. Mm. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think... This touches on another play um, that I helped make um, about a vigilante freedom fighter in India, a woman who, who fights for women's rights. And she's a real person. I went to go and live with her. And she's extraordinary. But the fear and anxiety for the playwright was 
this woman is doing such incredible work. Mm. How can I represent her three-dimensionally? Yeah. Because she's also a, a, a very flawed person. She's a human being, as, as we all are. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, having to really weigh up this idea of, well, well what happens if we show her with her flaws and complexities? Um, does that give ammunition? Does that undermine the good that she's doing? And I think those considerations can be really um, paralyzing, actually, when, you, when you're tackling historical material. It, I mean, it, I, I, I think I've learned to get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really struggled when I was writing at the Gates of Gaza. Then I realized that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not writing a documentary. This is about human behavior. And the way to bring your audience in is to allow them to see that and take that journey, you know, with all the 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 the, the, the flaws that these characters might have because they're they're, they're human. It's this what I call Sidney Pottier syndrome. Mm-hmm. He played these noble black men, mm-hmm. and it was at a time when that was that was allowed because, you know, um, audiences felt safe with that nobility it was not challenging mm. and and often these these characters would just reflect the the kind of aspirations they had about racial justice mm. um so for example you know how uh, to sir with with love was 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 it was very different from the the, the book by er braithwaite mm. and a lot of the challenges that the that the black school teacher face and a lot of the racism was removed and then we look at spike lee's malcolm x you know and mm. he he showed him in, in in all of his glory so that we could understand um the the the, the man who became this 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 almost prophet-like um you know vessel of wisdom he he came from a, a really belligerent and and difficult past um and they showed that and an audience wouldn't be able to understand or appreciate that journey without that spectrum mm. you know it, it it is like um you know singing the scales or playing the scales if you like we have to move up and down through notes mm you know, human nature and human behavior isn't one note. So it, it's, it's powerful, you know, it's so important to, to be able to look at ourselves in, 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 in all of our glory, if you like, and, and not just from, you know, a, a perspective of, of nobility. When I was at university, I read uh, Toni Morrison's essay, Playing in the Dark, which um, talks about the challenge that I think you're describing needing to transcend, which is in this Western culture, etc. as soon as you say black person, black character, um, a load of signifiers come into play and the black character on stage is seen as representing the entirety of blackness yeah. in a way that perhaps a white character isn't. Um, mm-hmm. Therefore white characters in literature have traditionally had the ability to be incredibly flawed. I mean, King Lear isn't going to win Father of the Year awards. Um, But that doesn't seem to contravene or contradict 
um, their status as heroic characters because they are understood in, in their complexity and in, and in that vibrancy and, and with that range. And I feel like certainly in, in British theatre making, we are only slowly now even arriving at the point where that complexity can be offered to black characters, to female characters, to female protagonists in plays who so often are kind of reduced to certain stereotypes. Um, and I think that's part of the battle to fight, um, which I think a challenge for the writer in that space where we're representing stories that are unheard or have been underserved is having the confidence to allow some of that truth to be ugly. Yes. Um, and feel like that isn't going to be used as ammunition, that that's going to kind of demolish the cause in a way. Yes. Uh, so what I really enjoyed when I wrote The Whip was 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 how was the behaviour of, of, of those characters and how flawed they are while they're fighting for something that's so important. And um, Mercy had essentially abandoned her own children and left them with cruel masters because she felt that her own freedom was was more important her her ability to fight for freedom was more important than 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 motherhood um you know um i mean boyd is is incredibly flawed on the one hand you know there he is apparently believing in abolition and and racial justice and you know he he's got this young former black slave who he's raising like a son but not giving him any freedom so it's 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 really and there's a lot of there's, there's misogyny, um, you know. There's a lot of selfishness. Um, there's a lot of political ambition. But the, the 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 drive and the goal is to create something that's bigger than each of the characters, and they and in a sense they 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 all know that. And I think that's the thing to to sort of. Um, push out to our listeners there as well, which is to really, even where it's uncomfortable, embrace that three-dimensionality of the characters you're creating because their greatest success will be if they feel true for an audience, if they feel like human beings in the world. And um, confidence is required to go on that journey, I think, at times, but it's, it's, it's so important to hold fast to that. So on the subject of messy, flawed, three-dimensional human beings who have to be allowed to be terrible at times, I'm now going to introduce High Ties associate artist Chris Onyx. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that handover, Chris. <laughs> that was phenomenal. Thank you, Shuva. <laughs> Julia, hey, how are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? I, uh, I've got to admit, I've just been sitting here fanboying over you. Like, <laughs> I just could listen to you for like hours on end. It was like, oh, it was just brilliant. Thank you for being part of this. It's just a wonderful opportunity to, to talk with, with, with creatives. Um, it's, this is life-giving, I think, you know. <laughs> we, we've all been through um, quite an experience, you know, and it's still ongoing. <laughs> just drifting away in all of your your brilliant articulateness and elegance and just knowledge and and, and artistry um and i was thinking about your um talking about being the accessibility to fear and and um for me it was like 
when I was young and as I was getting into my twenties as well, I, I felt theatre not being particularly accessible. Um, mm-hmm. It was wasn't something that sort of spoke. It, you know, I was in it, I was doing it, I could make it, I was studying it, but it never really felt like I was welcome to come into the playhouses a bit. Uh, so accessing that art was was difficult for me. But what wasn't difficult was was music. Um, and and uh, sort of getting a link into to listening to to the world through through these incredible artists, really. Um, and I thought I just had a moment there of thinking. I think it's probably very trite like comparison, but musicians and those those real seminal albums being like journalism for the times. You know, regardless mm. of if it's Nina Simone or if it's Fela Kuti or Dizzy Rascal, they're sort of talking of a time and a place. Um, and they can really tell you about that. So I wondered whether music had any um, influence on your artistry. Um, and if so, who who was it? Well, that's a really good question. And I'm influenced by quite a few artists and my, my, my tastes are quite, it's quite eclectic. So I've grown up around a lot of Cuban music and a lot of, um, you know, Calypso music as well. Um, there is an, there is one album that I think really spoke to me actually, um, and that's Island Life by Grace Jones. Mm. You know, before Beyonce, Lady Gaga, we had Grace Jones, and as a young black girl, watching this uncompromising black woman with her flat top. You know, and her her artistry. I mean, she was creating music videos. She, you know, she's all about. She performs her music. She is one with her identity, how she expresses herself. I I just couldn't take my eyes off of her, and I love the fact that there's no one else like her. Mm. Um, I think it was about three years ago she she um, performed at quite a few music festivals with a with a hula hoop. I mean, you know, she's in her late sixties. Um, absolutely amazing. I, I'm trying to remember which song it was. I mean, it was um, "Slave to the Rhythm." Thank you. I have seen Grace Jones hula hoop several times for that full year. <laughs> well, I bought a hula hoop <laughs> and, um, you know, still struggling to, to, to get it up. And there she was. You know, this is, this is a long song. In her high heels, her corset, she had these Buddhist bells doing hula hooping to slave to the rhythm. And that song is so important but I think for me, um, it's a song I play a lot because, you know, through my career, I've often felt as if people have tried to force me into a box. Mm. And I'm always trying to get out of said box. So, for example, when I joined the BBC, people just, they just wanted me to go and, you know, cover the um, Notting Hill Carnival. And I wanted to go to Belfast. I had to fight to get to Belfast. Yeah. You know, I, I had to fight to get into um, and report from refugee camps because people had a very narrow view as to, 
you know, what a, a young black um, reporter would be interested in. Always wanted to tell the international stories. And Slave to the Rhythm, you know, speaks about someone who wants to break out of whatever rhythm and, um, you know, popular beliefs there are at the time. So, yeah, definitely Grace Jones, Island Life. That's amazing, isn't it? Because Grace Jones as, a, as an entity is, 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 yeah, doing exactly that, you know. Was, yeah, singer, songwriter, lyricist, but, like, also model, also actress, also <laughs> record producer, not fitting into any one thing of not really... And, and some might say even, you know, like a performing artist, I guess, and, you know, yeah. performance artist. And, and even those genres, you know, it's like R&B, disco, new wave, mm. art, you know, it's all, it's all over the place. And that, like, I love that. I love that about artists of really going, I'm not going to be that one thing. And I think that that's quite clear, isn't it? From, uh, even from your career trajectory, I think, isn't it? Well, I, I've tried to be inspired by someone like her, you know, who, you know, it's it's easy to become institutionalised. I mean, I, I was at the B for a little while and I, one of the reasons why I decided to leave was that I just thought, I can't live like this. It, it, it provides this extraordinary security. But when you get to work and you pop to the, to, the, to the ladies' loo and you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're not sure who's looking back at you, you know, because you feel that you have to fit in with certain norms and and editorial ideas I just thought no this isn't you know um for me and then you look at someone like Grace Jones or Bjork even I'm a big fan of Bjork um I you know not not particularly aware of what she might be doing now but I remember when she came out it was like oh my god <laughs> this Icelandic performer just doing her thing so sometimes when I'm writing and depending on what I'm trying to write, I will listen to music to kind of get me there. You know, this, last year there was so much gloom. When we went into lockdown, it was it was weird. I mean, on the one hand, I really liked the, the bird song. And I liked the fact that I couldn't hear the double-decker buses, um, you know, and, and, and the cars driving by. But I, I did rely on music to kind of get me going again. Mm. You know, I, I had to kind of create playlists um, and, you know, it's impossible to listen to music and not have it affect every being of your fibre or, or fibre of your being rather, and to, <laughs> and, to, and, to, and to move and to, and to have a bit of a dance as well, you know. Um, yeah, it's really funny actually. I was in, I was, I was just in rehearsals today and... Um, the the cast were on a, a bit of a low uh, moment, and so we sort of started the day uh, with dancing to uh, Toots and the Maytels, and Brilliant. it just immediately <laughs> changed everybody's mood. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just to see the power of art, just literally being manifested in the. It's not even a, that a long song. It's sort of three minutes, you know, and just mm. that changing the mood of everybody, and then that continually. Uh, pushing the the artist to to continue to to start making stuff, and I think it's really really important. I love I'm, I'm 
one of the reasons I love this question actually is that it just gives me music to listen to. <laughs> yes, they're fantastic. And Island Life, Grace Jones, as I said, precursor to Beyonce and Lady Gaga and and everyone who comes after, you know, just such a trailblazer. And um, mm. we, we need that spirit right now, you know. Oh, well, 100%. But, and also the spirit of of saying you can't pin me down you can't you can't take uh what you think you know of me and and put yeah. me in this box and yeah i think the artists that will hopefully be able to rebel against all of those boxes um like yourself and and grace jones will just get better and better artists hopefully fingers crossed yeah <laughs> and she's still performing doing our hula hoop so let's hope that we get an opportunity to see her live somewhere if we went viral we could get grace jones to send you a hula hoop oh my gosh <laughs> could we do a viral campaign that would be amazing that would be absolutely amazing i i'd then have to put it online i guess my the results of my effort but um yeah it'd be worth it <laughs> Or even maybe that's the next play, Grace Jones's Hula Hoop. I feel like that is a good title for a play. <laughs> Grace Jones's um, Hula Hoop. I will finish the podcast, Juliet, with asking you um, uh, this question. And um, it, it's really simple. It's basically what would you have told your, your, um, your baby self uh, just when you were having the seeds of the idea that you might want to actually do writing full time? or that you wanted to go into a into this industry what would you have told yourself that's a superb question um to be true to myself hmm. to not doubt my own creative voice and, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, that is a journey in, in itself. I think we do start out with a lot of doubt. Um, but, you know, it's so important that... And, 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 you know, for our own mental health, to be honest, our, our own yeah. self-image, our own ability to be comfortable with who we are and our own voices really important and particularly for, for, for young people right now um, that's what I would tell my, 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 my baby self I think I've you know and we, we have our ups and downs and you know I think I, I, I found myself sometimes you lose yourself it's like being on a shore and watching a ship sail out to sea and you lose it on the horizon and then you wait for it to return um, I think that's what our, our kind of like inner identity can be like sometimes. Yeah. Um, and also to be comfortable when it sails away and know that it will come back. That's yeah. so important, isn't it? Thank you. I spend yeah. my, it uh, seems what, spending a significant amount of time to, uh, with young people at the moment and consistently saying that same thing. And I think for coming from your voice and coming from, from a person like you 
with all of the work that you've done and, and all of the brilliance that you've just spoken on this podcast, I think it means just so much more. So thank you for, for saying that and, and giving people agency to believe that. Thank you. This podcast was produced by High Tide and supported by Nick Hearn Books and Lansons. It was made possible with support from the Culture Recovery Fund. It was presented and produced by myself, Naomi Shonier-Thomas, and co-presented by Chris Sonix and Shuba Das. Chris Sonix also worked as a co-creator on the podcast. It was recorded by Callum Swingler and edited by Liam Cameron and featured original artwork by Dragonfly Design. Links to references and resources discussed in this episode can also be found at www.hightide.org.uk where you can also subscribe to High Tide's newsletter and donate to the theatre company. If you'd like to follow High Tide on Twitter, their handle is at underscore High Tide underscore. And don't forget, if you'd like to join in with the discussion in today's episode, you can do so on social media using the hashtag School of High Tide. <laughs>